This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. We're going to talk about important issues that are starting to face uh, the world of brewing these days as we are looking at COVID spikes and additional uh, shutdowns and whatnot. My guest on the podcast to talk about that is Julie Verratti, founder and chief brand officer of Denizens Brewing in Silver Springs, Maryland. Welcome to the podcast, Julie. Thank you, Jamie. I appreciate you having me. You have been an advocate for craft brewers throughout this very difficult year of working through government programs and trying to find uh, ways of supporting and keeping healthy uh, you know, businesses that are directly impacted. And so I can't wait to pick your brain to talk about that as we are now not out of the woods and now facing a, a difficult winter ahead of us. Um, yeah, we're we're nowhere close to being out of the woods, We are nowhere close to that. Um, yeah, and brewing uh, businesses across the country and around the world are certainly feeling a real pinch around this. And using your background and working with government and uh, as an attorney, we're going to, I would love to get some feedback and uh, you know, pick your brain for what brewers can do and what the general public can do to kind of uh, help move this forward and help make sure that the businesses that we all care about are going to be there uh, when the smoke clears, when a vaccine eventually gets out there and when we can get back to normal. Um, and we'll get into some of those questions. But first, nearly 2,000 breweries across the U.S., Canada, and Mexico partner with GND Chillers. Innovative modular designs and no proprietary parts propel GND ahead as the premier choice for your glycol chilling needs. Breweries you recognize like Russian River and Kasi, Jack Sabby, Samuel Adams, and a bunch more that you've heard right here on this very podcast all trust GND to chill the beer you love. Call GND Chillers to discuss your project today or reach out directly at gdchillers.com. Also, haze for days in your IPAs. Carry Biohaze from BSG adds that perfect, stable, cloudy appearance for your hazy recipe. Made with all natural materials, Biohaze is a free flowing microgranular powder that binds with protein molecules in beer that form polyphenol protein complexes to produce a cloudy haze. This unique, unique product can be added to final beer to give your beer that famous haze. Find out more about Biohaze at bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact them at 1-800-374-2739. Julie, let's talk a little bit about your past in, in craft beer and uh, you know what that arc looked like from uh, fandom to uh, deciding to embark on this as a uh, business and an entrepreneurial uh, approach. Sure. Um, so, I mean, where do you want me to start? Like, just sort of like... <laughs> When did I get in a beer? You know, well, I was born in 1979. There... I mean, you... <laughs> <laughs> well, was there a moment that said, hey, I love this? And then what was the next moment after that that said, hey, I need to start a business around yeah, this? Yeah, sure. So um, it's funny, actually, like a little known fact about me. Uh, I actually didn't actually, uh, start drinking beer until I was in my like mid 20s. Um, I actually went through undergrad um, totally like just didn't have any alcohol. I was one of those like weird kids that just was really wow. focused on my studies. Um, I will say, I always joke, you know, I actually, I cracked my first beer um, after my first semester of law school. And I don't know if that was just like <laughs> the pressure of that. Um, but it was actually, I had a uh, Scottish ale. It was one of my dad's favorite kinds of beers. And I thought, I'm going to give this a shot. Um, and I, and I, I enjoyed it. Um, it wasn't my favorite, still not my favorite style today, but that sort of like started my arc and sort of my, my mid twenties of getting into beer that way. And, um, I don't know. I just, I started drinking local beers that were made. Um, at the time I was living in the DC Metro area. I was in DC proper at the time I live in Maryland now. Uh, and I just was really excited about all the different flavors uh, of the beers that I could get my hands on. And, uh, I actually, I have a twin sister and for my birthday one year, very early on, um, she gave me one of those Mr. Beer kits and I started, like I do with a lot of things that I that I like, I get really obsessed with it and uh, just really jumped in with two feet and started brewing um, almost every weekend and, you know, filling the house up with tons of bottles and just making really, really uh, terribly inconsistent beer and uh, but just love doing it anyway. Um, I actually found throughout that process that I, I love the hobby of, of making beer and I love the experience, you know, hanging out with friends and um 
drinking professionally made beer while I'm doing it. And, um, yeah, yeah, I just, I just never really got into the actual like technical brewing. It was just not my strong spot. Um, but you know, I have my, my wife and I live in, live in Maryland. I was born and raised in silver spring, uh, which is where our very first location, uh, was opened in 2014. Uh, we since then have opened a second facility in Riverdale park, Maryland, uh, which opened in 2019. Uh, we can talk a little bit about how awesome that timing was, um, if you want later on, but, um, <laughs> but no, we, uh, you know, we lived in silver spring and there, there really, there was no, uh, breweries in our area, um, you know, creating yeah. that sort of community tap room space, brew pub space. And, uh, we wanted to do that. You know, I think both Emily and I have also always just been entrepreneurial, um, you know, pr- immediately prior to opening Denizens, I was a senior advisor at the small business administration. And so, I traveled the country a lot and got to interact with all these small business owners in all varieties of sectors. And I got to tell you, it's really difficult to have that experience and not feel inspired by the entrepreneurialism that happens in this country everywhere. Right. And I just was getting itchy and wanting to sort of start start my own thing. And, um, you know, Emily has a lot of the same sort of background as I do. And uh, we luckily have a brother-in-law. Uh, Jeff Ramirez, who is extremely talented and had been brewing professionally for a number of years at that point. And we thought we all love beer. Um, there seems to be a space for this right here. And uh, we got together and opened Denizens in 2014. Uh, that's fantastic. And so you were basically working as uh, someone supporting small businesses and then decided mm-hmm. to make the leap yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, how did uh, how'd you go about forming a business? I mean, obviously, if you have a connection <laughs> in the uh, Small Business Administration, there might seem to be some avenue right there to uh, help fund a, a business. You launch. would think, uh, but because I worked for the SBA, it was actually ethically not possible for me to get an SBA loan. Uh, so right. uh, we did not have any SBA funding when we started out. And uh, um, yeah, so oh, wow. we, uh, okay. you know, we did the whole uh, initial funding round of like, quote, friends and family. And I put that in quotes because the definition of friend becomes very flexible when you're trying to find folks to give you <laughs> uh, to give you funding. Sure. Um, sure. You know, and like a lot of, I think, small businesses when we're first starting out, we completely undervalued what we what our business was worth um, and probably should have right. asked for more money than we did. But um, it did allow us to get that initial um, cash to then you know, start, you know, purchasing equipment and whatnot. We were lucky, I think, at the time, because uh, there was a lot of used equipment on the market at that time. So we were able to save money right. that way. We bootstrapped a lot of it, you know, things from, you know, instead of hiring a company to paint the building, uh, we bought pizza and beer for friends and we, you know, saved $5,000 that way. Uh, wow. Je- we, could, we couldn't afford to have more than one electrician. So we hired one master electrician and Jeff basically became an, an apprentice. Uh, and so he worked as the assistant electrician and, um, it's actually, we've actually found that that has actually helped us over the years because he learned so much during that time period that he's able to do, you know, some of the small fixes we need, but those are just a couple of examples. You know, we actually had to change laws in, uh, in Montgomery County, Maryland, which is where we're our first place is located. We created a brand new business model, um, you know, we really bet the house on this one because, uh, in order for the bank to finally close on our loan, we had to convince the governor to sign emergency legislation um, in order for the bank to actually close because the bank was basically saying, so here's your business plan. I see what you're trying to do right now. The law doesn't allow for that. So we're not giving you money for this until this becomes the law. And it was just like a bunch of things. So, you know, we had already spent all of our investors funds. Uh, We had spent the cash that we had brought with little that we'd had um, racked up a bunch of credit card debt and whatnot. But, um, we were able to get the legislation passed on the state level. Uh, we were a- we got it passed unanimously, which was pretty amazing. Um, and then, on, you know, in Maryland, the uh, legislature actually only meets uh, three months out of the year. So we had a very tight window. And generally, the governor waits a couple months before he or she signs whatever the legislation is and actually becomes law. And so we basically, I, I Googled and found out who the chief of staff to the governor was and reached out to the person and was like, hey... <laughs> We've run out of cash. Uh, we need you to sign that. We need the governor to sign this like immediately so that the bank will close. And uh, governor signed it like mid-April. And literally the very next day on tax day, April 15th of 2014, the bank closed on the loan. Uh, and we were able to get our doors open just a couple months later in July. So we uh, 
it was pretty crazy. Uh, it was either. Yeah. What was the yeah. what was the legislative change that uh, was necessary for the business model to work? Uh, two things. Um, one is to allow us to operate as a production brewery slash tap room where we could sell direct to consumers, mm -hmm. but not be required to operate a restaurant. Um, and so okay. our first year we were able to partner with a local food truck and they took over the kitchen because there was a kitchen in the building already. We just wanted to focus on the beer, get that right. Yeah. Uh, since then we took over the kitchen. We've operated our restaurants internally for the last five and a half years now at this point. Um, but that first year we didn't want to do it and didn't have the ability to, to be totally honest with you. Uh, so that was one. Right. And then the second was, um, for those of you who know, have heard of Montgomery County, Maryland, it is the only complete control jurisdiction in the entire country. So you have to buy all your beer, all your wine, all your spirits from the government. And so we were able to get a carve out so that we could self-distribute our beer directly to other licensees uh, and completely bypass the government. So that that was a huge thing for us in terms of just being able to show the bank, hey, we can actually make this business work if we have these have these things happen. So those are the two things for sure. Uh, so you spearheaded your own personal lobbying yes. uh, effort uh, with the the legislature. Yes. Um, you know, as as I'm thinking about it, that's a skill set that not a lot of brewery owners go into it with in terms of dealing with elected officials, in terms mm -hmm. of understanding how to you know work through the machinery of government bureaucracies, um, you know, to help uh, accomplish those ultimate goals. Um, what were some of the kind of first steps you take when uh, work trying to work and get a piece of legislation? through in uh you know the state legislature to to help make this change that'll help your business well there, there's a couple things i mean one you have to look at okay jurisdictional power right so like what is it that you're trying to do and what are the rules that either don't exist yet or are in place that you need to take away to allow you to do what you need to do yeah um so look at who who controls those rules and you know with all things alcohol related you know it's a heavily regulated regulated industry from local to state to federal, um, you know, sometimes even municipality uh, on top on top of even county levels, right? So right. there's a there's a lot of layers to it, and so you just have to look at. For us, we tried to be as nuanced as possible, so it wouldn't um, turn as many heads and start ginning up opposition. So I thought, okay, let's let's try to get a bill passed that only impacts Montgomery County, right? Which there's. 23 counties and one city in the state yeah. of Maryland. So we're going to have one county be impacted by this. Right. And then so the first thing I did was try to get buy in from the local county officials, even though they actually don't in Maryland, all alcohol laws are passed on the state level. Right. But you want to get local buy in. Right. So right. get convincing the, the local county elected officials to um, support the cause. And why wouldn't a county official want to support a legal change that would allow for business growth in their community, right? So whenever you're talking, I, I have always found um, whenever I am talking with an elected official, I always, when I have a meeting with them, want to come in with either an ask or an offer, right? You don't want to go in there necessarily wasting time because these folks are very busy. You know, they represent sure. hundreds of thousands of people, millions at some levels, right? So Really be succinct in your story, explaining, you know, these are the types of jobs we're going to be creating. This is what I think the economic impact is going to be. And we're just one isolated business. Think about if we knock these rules down, the amount of, you know, impact that's going to have exponentially on other businesses that open up because of it. Um, and we have actually found that in Montgomery County, it was one of the fastest growing areas in the state of Maryland for new breweries opening in the last couple of years. And most people will cite it's because of these specific rule changes that happened in the county. It gave them a lot more flexibility, didn't need as much capital to get their doors open. Uh, it was just a lot easier to do. So, yeah, so I, you know, talk to the local officials, get them on, on board, um, speak to also some of the bureaucrats, you know. It sounds to me like tax revenue and job creation are some of the primary oh, motivators yeah. for such officials. Absolutely. Um, that is absolutely a huge driver for folks. I mean, and it makes sense. Like your job as an accounting official is yeah. you're overseeing the area. You want to make sure tax revenues are up. You want to make sure job creation is happening because that also attracts new residents to come there. And, you know, it's more money going to the local schools and it just ends up helping everybody. Right. So 
those are two things you really want to focus sure. on. The breweries, you know, are anchor businesses now right. for uh, for a lot of economic development around the country. Uh, and so, you know, there certainly are a lot of other examples of breweries kind of anchoring additional development sure. around them that uh, uh, creates kind of that multiplier effect. No, absolutely. And, you know, making sure you're explaining, you know, you will be a community business. You know, for us, you know, we hire local. It's not like we moved into Silver Spring and then hired a bunch of people from somewhere else. Right. You know, we, most of the people who work for us live in Silver Spring. Most of the people who work for us in Riverdale Park live in Riverdale Park. Right. So that's really making sure you're hiring from your community and, and giving that messaging to your officials, local officials. And then once you uh, are able to really build those relationships, it, it, they have to be authentic relationships. This is not a thing where you're right. you're going in and you make an ask and then you, you never talk to someone again. Right. Like I have spent years um building relationships and there's a lot of folks around here that i you know i consider friends not just you know my my representatives because i you know i try to show up for them when they when they need help and uh also just kind of always just sharing my experience as a small business owner like hey you're looking at this piece of legislation let me tell you how it impacts me and and it could be anything from just calling them casually or sending them an email casually. It doesn't have to be testimony every time you're sharing your opinion, right? You can right. you can do it more casually. Um, yeah. You know, inviting people over to like come have beers with you and just say, "Hey, I just want to check in with you and let you know what's going on. This is what I see trending in the industry." And um, if you if you're able to build relationships authentically and really mean it and develop trust, you know, I have found that there are local officials now on the you know not just local, but state, local and federal, that when legislation is coming up, uh, because I've been able to build these relationships, they will actually reach out to me and say, hey, here's this bill that I'm looking at potentially sponsoring or writing. How does this impact your business? I want to know your perspective before before I do something. But yeah, yeah. So that's I've yeah, I, I, I agree with you 100 percent here. Um, yeah. In a probably no, I guess it was probably 15 years ago. I was uh, living in New York City and president of the New York City Mountain Bike Association that we kind of a group we formed to build trails in New York City because mountain bike trails didn't exist. Do they in the exist city. now? Um, and I found they do wow. exist. You know, there's uh, several, uh, three different trail systems in within the metro Holy New York, uh, within within the city of New York City, Manhattan, uh, Queens and uh, Staten Island. Um, but that idea of talking to parks officials and talking mm -hmm. to local representatives, um, f listening yeah. to them and figuring out what their priorities were and what their sure. values were. When you found that, uh, you know, the local city council person from a district was looking to, uh, you know, looking for opportunities to accomplish something and listened to the parks department and what their values were for them, it was children's recreation they wanted to find ways to get youth active in parks like and so you start listening and uh you know can come mm -hmm. up and figure out how these goals work together in a kind of uh you know uh, complementary way um and yeah. find ways for everyone to find a win along that from the council person to the parks department yep. um to the uh users that we're trying to advocate for um but that kind of process created a political change and was that necessary weight to overcome other kinds of institutional mm -hmm. uh, um, roadblocks yep. to accomplishing this, that kind of thing. So, um, you know, but I, I, I like that idea of uh, also building those relationships that are two way, mm -hmm. that are not just negative. Um, yeah. <laughs> when you have when you have those representatives that are doing interesting and good yeah. things, supporting them and expressing that Absolutely. support. Absolutely. Um, you know, a lot of politicians here constantly from the people that oh, are people angry. bitch at them all uh, the time. You just have to think about that, right? Like it's just a they get barraged with things constantly, and it's I truly believe that innately people are trying to do the right yeah. thing, right? They're doing the best they can with what they have at any given moment, and that includes elected officials, right? Elected officials will make decisions or pass legislation or do things sometimes where I'm like, oh, my God, I disagree with you 100 percent on what you just did. But that doesn't mean that they're like an evil person. Right. right. Like we have to bring humanity back to this. And politics is about relationships. It is about people. And like these are folks who represent you. People go into government 99 out of 100 times. I'm sure there are exceptions out there. Right. So I'm going to hedge that a little bit. But because they want to be of service right. and they want to help improve the area that they are representing. And so going into conversations and coming up with ideas and working collaboratively and making sure you're giving them credit when you right. can, right? Like sometimes, you know, not all votes are popular. And so it's, um, 
but even if it is the right thing or it's more nuanced than what I think, you know, a typical voter might know, generally speaking. And so making sure you're giving credit and supporting the folks that are advocating you on the, for you on those levels is really important as well. Sure, sure. I couldn't agree more. Let's um, shift gears and talk about uh, some of the COVID impacts and how that's uh, uh, how you've been able to advocate for government support around that. But before we do that, are you tired of trial and error carbonation processes? Then look at QuantaPerm's innovative automated carbonation systems for precise carbonation. These systems handle wide flow ranges to accommodate all your beer, wine, soda, or cider styles. You can even carbonate and directly send the products to a packaging line without tankage. Besides carbonation, QuantaPerm offers robust and economical systems for nitrogenation and water deoxygenation. All their systems have easy-to-use graphical user interfaces with reports and graphs that you can pull up on your mobile device. Visit quantaperm.com for more information. Also, Grandstand is your source for the latest trends in custom-printed drinkware, apparel, and promotional items. They make your job easy by serving as your one-stop shop for everything. Visit egrandstand.com forward slash lookbook to see what's trending. So, Julie, with that background in uh, how to work with uh, elected officials and, uh, you know, to find those kinds of common grounds, let's kind of shift gears and talk a little bit about uh, this past year and uh, the impacts of COVID, uh, what you've seen from uh, operating your business, um, some of the uh, strategies that you've been able to adopt to try to, um, you know, work through this, uh, ways to, you know, bring stimulus. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm asking way too many questions all at once right here. <laughs> Let's uh, let's let's kind of you know rewind a little bit. Um, SBA played a big role in this uh, you know uh, uh, approach to COVID and, and the government's approach to um, creating stimulus for small businesses. Um, from your perspective now, looking at it, I know that uh, uh, forgivenesses have started going out for uh, some of those uh, emergency loans offered uh, earlier in this year. Uh, what has your experience been around that? And uh, uh, have from a perspective as a brewery owner, uh, has that been a positive thing for the business? And uh, you know, what else do you need um, as a business owner to help make it through this? Uh, you know, have to make it through this past year. So I. I think that uh, the CARES Act actually did create a lot of good programs for small businesses across the country, breweries alike, as well as lots of other retail facing uh, companies and industries. But the thing that I actually found kind of um, frustrating, and I don't know if it's just because of my background and I've, you know, I used to work at the SBA, so I know the size of the SBA, but Basically, Congress handed one of the smallest federal agencies in the entire country. I mean, the, the Small Business Administration literally has fewer than 2,000 employees all day. Like, that's across the country. Yeah. They plus up on the disaster side. Whenever there's a disaster somewhere, they have a lot of contractors they can plus up quickly. Um, but as a day-to-day -day organization, it's very small. And one of the things that's great about that is it's a very nimble organization because it doesn't actually have as much bureaucracy as a lot of the other agencies do. Right. But I just thought that that was such a heavy load to put on the SBA's shoulders to literally be in charge of saving the small business economy in right. this country, uh, which was kind of nuts. That being said, um, I think the way that they've implemented, you know, the Triple P program has been really helpful. That certainly helped us. Um, the Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program has been helpful. Um, the other thing that I thought was quite frankly for us, because I, as I'm sure most small breweries are in this country, you know, we had to open with a lot of debt financing. Um, and when we did our second expansion, um, I had been away from my employment at the SBA for a long, like at yeah. least five years. So I was able to, we were actually able to get a 7A loan for that second uh, location. Um, and one of the programs the CARES Act did is it, it, it had the SBA pay six months worth of those monthly payments towards that loan. Uh, which was, quite frankly, one of the things that helped us the absolute most. Um, when I've been talking to elected officials, federal, state, local, I say, you've got two strategies here. One is, how do we keep cash in the bank accounts of small businesses? And number two, how do we put more cash into those bank accounts, right? And so tactics on keeping cash in are, don't force us to make bank loan payments that we would normally have to pay, obviously, in a non-pandemic right. situation. Um, and then adding cash as a tactic was the Triple P program, as well as the, the IDLE program um, that the SBA did. 
Um, and there's, you know, there's a myriad of other things that the government can do um, on the state and local level. I don't know, maybe waive uh, licensing fees that you're supposed to pay every year right now. Put, it, put a kibosh on that for the time being. I also think that, you know, this is an emergency situation and it doesn't, even though this is not a physical disaster, this is absolutely a financial disaster uh, and a public health hazard going on. So making sure that businesses don't have to get things notarized, like, come on, don't do that type of stuff. It comes down to like the little things, right, in terms of being able to implement things implement things well, um, you know, making sure there's not a huge heavy lift on applications and documents that businesses need to apply for. I've always said, you know, the government could just get money to people now. And guess what? If you find in three years from now, you go back and do an audit and you say, hey, business A, we gave you this $100,000 grant, but after looking back on the books, you probably only needed 50000 So you're going to pay back that 50000 over the next, you know, or however many years. There should not be any means testing going on right now. You can always claw back the money in the future once we're on the other side of this economic disaster. And so these are these are things that I have been pushing with officials uh, up and down in terms of as they look to add more programs um, to make sure they're thinking about those things. Sure. And there you know, has been a lot of back and forth on that and a lot of, uh, you know, Certainly, media has picked up on some of the most egregious, uh, you know, kind of um, uh, fraud. Yeah, yes. <laughs> is that guess, the word you're looking guess, for? Fraud, fraud is a good way to put it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, fraud, but you know, even some of the kind of uh, you know larger corporate uh, uh, bending rules in order to uh, or following sure. the letter of the program as it was written in order to take advantage of it or, you know, hotels recategorizing each one as an individual business to get through caps. I mean, there's a whole litany of, of things that people get upset about. Um, you know, if the program still ended up with extra money to give out that they didn't give out, did it not? I mean, there was, especially in that second wave of PPP, um, enough funds to hit, uh, you know, um, and you can correct me on, on that if I'm wrong, uh, but I, you know, that- I think that, no, I think there was a little extra money left over from that. Um, but Hey, guess what? Maybe they should uh, redo the program again. Well, right. right. That, I- that program <laughs> ended in July 31st and now here we are. And uh, you know, even when it ended, you've got plenty of businesses that can't operate at a hundred percent. You've got, um, you know, even more cascading impacts throughout the industry in terms of supply chain, about shipping and logistics, you know, all sorts of other things that are impacting it. There is so much in the broader economy right now that's locked up in even just Mm -hmm. waiting for things because, um, you know, getting ingredients, getting stuff, you know, I mean, look at, think about breweries needing Mm -hmm. to sell beer and how um, packaging is now constrained, Mm -hmm. you know, with the aluminum (laughs) cans and everything like, you know, that is all pent up economic activity that can't happen because of all sorts of other impacts um, that are cascading for a variety of different reasons. And so the impact to businesses is still real. Um, you know, you still can't sell as much of a product that you otherwise could to an end consumer. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and you're not being able to sell that means you can't pay as many staff and you can't right. do all these other things that also feed into that economy. So from your perspective, what, um, you know, what does it look like now? And what do you think that um, bring industry needs to lobby for at a federal level, at a state level or at various state levels um, in order to get through, you know, the next six or eight months until we somehow have more widespread uh vaccine access and hopefully theoretically can uh, return to a more normalized economy? Well, I think generally speaking, that if you are a small business owner listening to this podcast right now, um, I, I highly recommend that if you haven't already, and I'm sure a lot of you have, please reach out to all of your officials that represent you, um, not just where you live, but also the jurisdiction of where your business is located and tell your story. And it's not just to the elected official themselves, but the staff that work for this work for the members. Um, it is just as important to be creating those authentic relationships with their staff as well. Um, and just tell them what you need. I, I know for me personally, at Denizens, the things that I've been asking for, again, those top line strategies, keep money in um, and also like don't take it out and put money more back, more money in. Um, so I've been asking for licenses to be paused in terms of our annual fee structure. 
whether that's our local liquor license to our state manufacturing license, um, you know, things like that. Um, I'm also asking that loan forgiveness happen. I also think on a broader on a broader scale, uh, commercial landlords need to be able to be backed up right now. Um, and that is a federal issue. Banking laws are run by the federal government. They're not run by the state. So I, I hear a lot of people talking about and demanding, oh, the states need to put a pause on all rents, put a moratorium on rents, right? You can't do that if you're not backing up the landlords because the landlords still have to pay their mortgages. And believe it or not, there's a lot of landlords out there that are small landlords. They're not these big right. behemoth corporate landlord companies, right? And so- they're individuals if, that wanted steady, steady income. A lot of them are yeah, retired. And exactly. uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, example for us, you know, our landlord in Silver Spring, I always describe him as he's a photographer who happens to own a commercial building, right? Like he's, this is not a thing. Like this is not what he's always done, but he still has a mortgage. He has to pay on it. Right. And so, you know, rents, those are all. And those mortgages are generally held by a smaller number of financial institutions. Right. That, you know, if they are originated in a local kind of area, sure. they're still sold on. And so the, the companies exactly. that control those mortgages, um, you know, that becomes a, a federal issue. It's a federal issue. And we need to be asking Congress to back the banks up, you know, back off on some of the regulations for the time being in terms of the banks being able to forgive some of the mortgage payments to these commercial landlords and on as a condition to that, those commercial landlords are then working with their, um, you know, renters uh, to make sure that they don't have to pay them rents. Right. But it has to start at the federal level because leases are a matter of contract law. And those are that's the state that deals with those. So this is all a big moving wheel that needs to be worked together from the federal to the state to the local area. And so. I'm just hoping that people can work together more. I am hoping that there I wish there was more of a. Uh, a task force orientation where you've got people from the federal government, so members of Congress, members of the Senate, working with the governor's associations, working with the state legislative associations, making sure that all of these people are being represented at every level and just sort of saying, okay, what can I do at my level of authority and what can you do at your level of authority? And let's try to work together to come up with a solution to save the economy. And, and, I, and I have said this over and over and over again, if this country and our elected leaders allow small businesses to die, because that is absolutely what will happen, especially as we go into the winter, at some point it's going to be too cold. You're not going to have enough heaters or fire pits or whatever you're doing to keep people outside drinking. At 30 degrees, I'm sorry, like how many blankets are you going to have? You know, and I think about places like Minnesota and the Midwest and just it's heartbreaking to think about what's happening with small businesses out there. Right. And so. The com this country needs to make sure we save our small businesses, because if we don't, we are going to have millions of more people that are going to need government assistance. And you will have just completely eviscerated your entire tax base. Small businesses are 50 percent of this of the economy and especially when it comes to job creation. So we need to make sure that we are helping small businesses survive at right. every level. And so just hammering that message you know, when we talked at the beginning, I said when we were trying to open our business, we talked about these are the jobs we're creating. This is the tax revenue that we're going to bring. It's the same messaging in terms of protecting small businesses. It's these are the job losses that you will stop if you do this. You know, this is the tax revenue you will be able to maintain if you do this. And so there has to be long term strategies being implemented right now and thinking about the forest and not just some of the trees. And so please talk to your officials and. <laughs> just share your experience with them about for that. For sure. And there's, you know, in this kind of environment, especially when there is so much outflow of government funds, it's natural. And there's always this um, kind of counter movement toward austerity and, a, mm -hmm. you know, certain politics that uh, then claim, well, we've spent too much and given out too much. Uh, if you look at uh, the history of economics over the last, you know, 30 years, mm -hmm. it certainly bears out that austerity never uh, accomplishes economic recovery uh, nearly nope. to the degree that uh, nope. massive government stimulus does. And, right. uh, you know, I think most now, which is in good because um, both political parties in the United States have some awareness of this and want to see some, uh, you know, that economic recovery 
actually happen. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean it's weird to even talk about recovery because we're not even at a point where recovery can start. We're still in a mitigating and uh, managing through the active um, uh, issue here. Uh, but yes, that that stimulus is going to be the only way and that support for those businesses and keeping those businesses and jobs there is really the only long-term strategy that we but have. Yeah, it's also quite frankly, just from, there's nothing more American than entrepreneurship, right? And if we have a situation where the government has allowed people who are entrepreneurs that have risked everything to open their doors, to hire people, to build a community business, to let them die, what do you think that's going to do to the American psyche? Like, I don't know too many people who are taking a look at this and thinking, hmm, this is a great idea. I'm going to go ahead and start a business. I'm going to risk everything to do that. Because if something like this happens again, you know, you're, you're left out in the cold. I mean, and I know for, for denizens, you know, Emily and I, and Jeff, and Jeff as well, we put everything we owned on our line to on the line to in order to get the financing we had. You know, our house is collateral. So if denizens goes down and dies, not only do I lose my livelihood, I literally lose everything I own. And so that yeah. that that to me is also like a big fire under my ass. Like we're not gonna we're not gonna fail. We're gonna do everything we can to survive. We not we may not be turning some profits. We may not be you know making money. Uh, but if we can at least survive and get our bills paid at the very minimum. Um, we're going to do that so we can try to thrive at the end of this. And so I don't know. I mean, for us sure. also, this whole experience has really had us take a step back and look at, you know, and, and I, I really credit Emily on this because she's our, you know, the person in charge of the finances on our side. She's really taking a look at like, where can we cut costs? Where, what are things we can do down to the penny that will allow us to um, not lose as much money? So everything from, Oh, the pack tax, like, guess what? We're reusing those case trays. Guess what? We're going to be reusing those because every single penny counts and you can, those things add up. And if you can save money on those small things, um, it just makes things a lot easier um, in, or, in order to sort of, sort of stay cash flow positive. But, you know, and then Jeff is doing an incredible job of just, um, he's like, he's in charge of all the brewing at Denizens. Uh, he's doing a really good job of making sure like he's only ordering the ingredients we need for certain things. And then also ordering at bulk levels for things where we'll be able to save long term. Right. So it's just this constant game of like, okay, here's the cash coming in. Where are we saving? Where can we buy in bulk? You just don't have as much flexibility as you used to when the economy was acting normal, right? right? So it's just really thinking about all those things strategically. Let's talk a little bit more about those strategies. Um, you know, mm-hmm. before I do that, I think that, you know, not to get too abstract or theoretical, but the existence <laughs> of government in, in humanity is a giant risk mitigation strategy that, you know, we've, <laughs> that we've created government in order to, yeah. you know, um, you know, foster safety, to foster, you know, support and mm-hmm. to um, make life uh, more consistent and more mm-hmm. steady than, uh, you know, uh, ungovernmented, uh, unregulated uh, environment. And so, you know, if we look at government as this thing that is there in order to, uh, you know, uh, mitigate that overall the overall risk of mere existence mm-hmm. in this world then uh you know and it's something that created by us you know by individuals and uh um then it makes sense to use government in that sense mm-hmm. to in this you know to mitigate the risk in this kind of strategy um but sorry that was uh more of a broader philosophical point on no, that I, um but i do I think agree. that you know using government for that end uh is uh, morally acceptable and right Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> let, let's shift gears and talk about some of those smaller strategies, um, that you've been able to use at Denizens in order to uh, kind of make it through. But before we do that, ABS commercial is excited to be a part of today's podcast. ABS is a full brewery outfitter offering brew houses, tanks, keg washers, and small parts. ABS wanted to do something fun for the craft beer industry. So they're giving away an ABS keg Viking keg washer live on December 5th, which happens to also be National Repeal Day. To enter, go to www.abs-commercial.com and click on the Keg Viking page. Fill out the contest form for your chance to win. Also, Craft Beer and Brewing's all-access subscriptions give you a year of the print and digital editions of the magazine, plus access to our library of video courses, special deep dive email only for all-access subscribers, premium content, and all-access exclusive merchandise. Subscribers are the first to see every new issue, including our annual Best in Beer issue that's out now. Go to beerandbrewing.com, click on the subscribe button, and join now. Um, 
so let's think about that a little bit, Julie. Um, what you you kind of teased some of the strategies that you've been taking to kind of minimize outflow of uh, of excessive cash and try to keep that into the business so that you uh, um, you know can keep things running a little bit longer. Um, are there any other interesting strategies that you've found uh, in terms of uh, staff and supporting staff, uh, in terms of managing costs, in terms of um, making sales uh, more fluid? and more mm-hmm. accessible to consumers so that they feel um, you know, safer in making purchases and increase their purchases. Yeah, I mean, just trying to be as creative as possible with um, ways that we can get our products into people's hands. So everything, and again, th- some of this is state by state. So make sure you're checking your, re- your local regulations as to whether or not you're legally able to do this. But if you aren't, I would say you need to be knocking on the doors of people who can change, make those changes. Because at this point, um, we need to be able to sell our products as much as we can. Right. Um, and so everything from home delivery, uh, which we launched, uh, we were the first brewery in the state of Maryland to do that. Um, so home delivery, we started on March 15th, which was the day before everything got shut down wow. by the governor. Um, Cause we saw the writing on the wall, right? Like, so we just started planning and I will tell you our initial iteration of home deliveries was a complete shit show. Um, <laughs> very analog uh our pos system that had not sort of caught up yet but now we're now in a much better place where you can actually order online it's you know it's much better but what what um, were some what were some of the problems that you solved with uh with home delivery uh well being able to move our products faster because you know well obviously a majority of our sales had been through kegs we do sell a lot of package um you know so at denizens like i said we have the two locations we have two tap rooms restaurants uh, but we also uh, we self-distribute in Montgomery County, Maryland, but we work with the distributor partner uh, for the rest of the state of Maryland, as well as D.C. and then Virginia. So we have kind of a little bit of all the different worlds of own premise and then self-distro and then distribution, the traditional distribution route. Um, but, you know, distributors were like, holy crap, we're going to have to buy back all these kegs like we're putting a pause on ordering for a minute. And so we had a few weeks there where like the normal distribution networks, like just we couldn't get them beer. And so, OK, well, we've got all these cans. Let's just start. Sell- we just started delivering them to people. Um, we're lucky that in Maryland, we can also sell kegs directly to individuals. So we do have uh, a pretty good business that we I've been slowly sort of building up um, on that side, which I think as we go into the winter and more on premise places are not going to be. I mean, they're already not really buying kegs at this right, point anyway, right. but it's going to be even worse. Um, so seeing if we have outlets to send kegs to consumers directly, um, as well as, you know, since being able to open our tap rooms, making sure we are very, very careful about um, keeping tables, socially distanced, enforcing mask wearing, doing contact tracing, um, sanitizing everything that we can as often as we can, making sure that staff is being safe and that, um, you know, trying to keep some of the same people on staff working the same shifts so that if there were, God forbid, something, you know, and knock on wood, right. we've not had anyone, um, you know, suffer from COVID yet, um, which I'm, I'm hoping won't ever happen. But um, just making sure that staff is being safe and keeping customers safe to also really plussing up our self-distribution um, because the distributors are doing what they can. And I have actually found that consumers are kind of going to what they know already. So it's particularly hard if you are a young brewery that hasn't been open for more than a couple of years because, you know, people are going back to, I mean, if you look at the numbers, like Boston beer numbers have skyrocketed, Sierra's numbers have skyrocketed. And it's not because these, you know, these bees are all good, but like there had been a trend over the last few years prior to COVID where it was kind of like, what's new, what's next, what's that new young brewery? Let me go get their stuff. Um, but now those that's kind of flipped. Right. And so make people are going back to their core brands. And so we actually found we have both a hazy IPA called Animal and then we have our sort of West Coast style Southside IPA that are in our core lineup. And over the last <clears throat> year or so prior to COVID, we found that uh, the Southside sales have been going down while the hazy have been going up. I don't think that's news to anybody. Right, right. right. But now Southside is like basically right at the same level as the hazy. And I think it's because our customers have been drinking that from us since 2014. And it's like a brand that resonated with them. And so it's just sort of people want familiarity. Everything is flipped on its head at this point. So I don't know. 
yeah you think that's sorry. A ch- i no, could that, go off no, about this stuff no but. i think that's really interesting and i am curious about that you know i mean we've certainly also seen uh, increased mm-hmm. sales of uh, imperial high gravity beers um sure. because i mean if people are going to go buy it they they want to drink a lot of it i guess <laughs> um you know, but this, I'm, I'm, I'm curious from your perspective, if you think that this kind of move back towards your West Coast IPA, or at least a rebalancing between the hazy IPA and the West Coast IPA, is driven by the same customers making, um, you know, choosing a, a, this other brand, or is it driven by customers, that, older customers, that, or original customers from that you know earlier phase of the business who want to support you that are coming back to your business? Um, or is it some combination of these kinds of things? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm curious if you have any kind of background or data or a way to, to look at that. Um, I wish I could. Part of the issue is that we changed our point of sale system from what we had used yeah, originally. Yeah a couple of years ago. So like, I don't really have any of that data to cross tabulate. Um, I will tell you that we have in terms of our delivery, we do, we do track a lot of data. So like we know when somebody places an order, we know exactly how many times they've ordered before. Um, we know what they've ordered before we're tracking things based off zip code, um, making sure that when we do spend marketing dollars, we're, we're geo targeting that, um, for areas that we're trying to plus up. Um, so really making sure even because you can do geo targeting ads that are not too expensive, you know, just trying to really plus up the delivery. And as we go into January, as it gets colder, I can I, that's something, you know, we're kind of relying on. But who knows? Maybe we have a yeah. mild winter. Yeah. Right. That's one of the hardest parts about this whole thing is the uncertainty. Like just we don't know what's going to go down. We want to pick a day. OK, we're going to focus on this on this day. But then what if it's like freakishly 80 degrees one day? Right. In right, December. Right. Like, what are you supposed to do? It's. Yeah. Are you when you're uh, with your online sales system for uh, for this kinds of delivery mm-hmm. sales and the, are you tied in with your social media spend so that you can track the return on those uh, geo targeted advertising buys? Yeah. And then doing things, you know, as personalized as possible. So, like I yeah. said, I know that, <clears throat> you know, anytime someone orders, I know how many times they've ordered before. And one of the things we've been trying to do is really make the home delivery and order system as personalized as possible. So we send in a confirmation email to every single individual that's not automatically generated. Huh. Like we send it yeah. personally. Um, and so folks that I know have ordered a bunch of times, I can put in a little personal. Obviously, a chunk of it is already pre-written, sure. but sure. I can put little personalized things in there putting handwritten notes into people's things, giving them random treats like, oh, you've ordered 10 times. We're going to throw in, you know, a couple of coasters and a sticker, like a a fridge magnet. So like we've we've created these magnets that um, that we give out to people that is about our beer mobile service. So you can see this here. I know that people won't be able to on the you know, it's just sort of like different, different, small (laughs) dollar things that you can do to like kind of create these experiences for people Um, to have them constantly reminded of your brand has been a huge thing for us. Um, And just honestly, going back to the hustle of day one, you know, when I, when we first opened our doors in 2014, I mean, I told you like we painted the building ourselves, we built the bars ourselves, we did all these things ourselves. And so I'm out on the road at least two days a week doing the home deliveries myself. Wow. You know, I, I was on the road yesterday for about four hours doing them. Yeah. Um, I'm not doing them today because we scheduled this call, but uh, normally I'd be out on a Sunday as well. You know, you just got to hustle right now and bootstrap everything in order to survive. For sure. Now, you know, th- this has really been something we've been talking about this year. Um, breweries are not e-commerce businesses. And so mm-hmm. even in terms of something yeah. like um, managing uh, sales versus inventory and keeping track mm-hmm. of what your available inventory is, how it's going out through varying systems, you know, because now you have to integrate your e-commerce system for people that are ordering online with mm-hmm. whatever your point of sale system is, you know, within the tap room. Uh, some There are some systems that span across those two things yeah. uh, in order to kind of maintain that. But understanding that and being able to kind of track that is a new kind of uh, aptitude, you know, for breweries. I think, I think for a lot of breweries, absolutely. Um, and I think a vast majority of breweries in the country yeah. right now, um, we, you know, we started using Ecos. Uh, I guess this is sort of like a free plug, I guess, for Ecos sure, software. Sure. Uh, was not planning this, but uh, we started using them in 2016, 2015. Yeah. Um, I can't remember when. 
Uh, but that has been a godsend for us because we can track everything from the malt that goes into the recipe right. all the way up to the other end as to whether it went directly to a consumer through our tap room or it was sold to a, you know, a retail account. So that's been huge, that type of software. It's not cheap, um, but it's not overly expensive either. Right. If it was already built into your business plan, I mean, it's I, I think it would I I think it'd be crazy to get rid of something like that right now, but it might right. be a little cost prohibitive. To do, they, add. do they have a customer uh, facing uh, e-commerce platform that you can also order from, or do you have software that ties into that? No, our our stuff ties in. It oh, also okay. sort of integrates. Great, great. What so, uh, what do you use for that kind of consumer facing uh, e-commerce shopping? We use Upserve, okay. um, which is it, it's it's okay. Yeah, there's <laughs> but it's expensive. You know, listen, POS sure, is sure. expensive, and we just changed over to Upserve in 2019 in anticipation of opening our second location, and so. For us, we're not we're not changing again. Right. Like we spent right. thousands of dollars on this, we're not changing it. And they've they have made some improvements on it. I mean, the one thing that I find really annoying is that anytime someone places an order online uh, for either delivery or pickup, um, the delivery is the one that bothers me the most. Upserve will send them an automatic text message and email as soon as we hit print on the receipt that tells them that their delivery is going to arrive in one to two minutes, which is clearly insane, <laughs> yeah, yeah. right? Like this isn't like, you right. know, snap your heels together three times and your beer arrives. Right. So yeah, I think most customers get that. Like, obviously that's not going to happen. Right, and right. then we send the, the confirmation email immediately after explaining it. And at this point we have so many regular repeat customers for deliveries that I like, you know, 90% of the folks who are ordering from us have ordered before. So it's right. less of an issue now, but I had to answer a lot of <laughs> what the fuck is this emails from people um, in the beginning when they're like, what do you mean? One to two minutes. This is crazy. So. Yeah. What, um, as uh, we start to prepare for a winter that looks like it's going to be, you know, more of uh, uh, the same of limited capacity of uh, uh, intermittent shutdowns potentially as uh, COVID cases spike, um, what does, uh, what are you looking at for winter service models and how you can still allow for people to have some sort of safe or, you know, uh, experience at the brewery? Um, so a few things everywhere from, um, you know, we, you know, we're lucky that we have a restaurant, uh, an executive chef who's very talented. So, uh, we started, we offered Thanksgiving meals for people for pickup the day before we sold out of those within like two weeks. So if you're a brewery out there looking for creative ways, just think about holidays right now, people are staying at home. Um, they're not going to be visiting families. So looking at creating meal packages for like staying at home for a holiday for one or two people or, you know, so we did it up to six people was an option. Yeah. Um, and so that's one thing. Number two, uh, we've converted our outdoor spaces in silver spring. We're lucky that we have a massive beer garden space. So can fit up to like 400 people in wow. normal times, uh, Riverdale park, uh, it's much smaller, but it's still a pretty substantial outdoor patio area. Uh, for the fall, we turned it into a big pumpkin patch. Um, and then in the winter, we're turning it into this massive winter wonderland. So bought a bunch of the like cheesy crap that you find at like Costco, like the big blow ups, uh, right. snowmen <laughs> and like reindeers. Yeah, and yeah. We're going to do a bunch of fake snow and just try to create some sort of like festival feel. And then for heating elements, we've got a bunch of fire pits in both locations, as well as we're waiting on some heaters. That's been another. We talked about supply chain before, yeah. you know, getting a getting a hold of the heaters has been an issue. And then propane costs have gone up through the roof. Um, so it's just it's just constantly just trying to manage all that. And then obviously continuing to do curbside pickup, home deliveries, et cetera. Do you have you um, managed the experience in different ways for people with different comfort levels? You know, I know there are some folks that want to mm -hmm. go out and drink at a brewery and try to do yeah. that in the safest way possible. There are other folks that just want to you know, come in and pick up beer and get out and not yep. have a contact with anybody. How do you manage these different types of customers and their different uh, you know, kind of comfort levels? Everything from, you know, there are people who just order delivery and that's and that's great. And so what we've actually done, again, with the cross marketing stuff. So anytime somebody comes into the tap room and actually hangs out and drinks a beer on site and has a meal on site, we always give them information and a card at the end that says, hey, did you know that we do home deliveries? Right. So telling them and then when we're emailing people who 
ordered delivery, we're letting them know, hey, we're actually open for social distance. Here's all the things we do for safety precautions. If you ever do want to venture out of your house. Yeah. If not, we're always happy to bring you the beer to your house. Right. Keep doing this. This is fine. Um, and then obviously advertising curbside pickup, doing all of those things. Um, also making sure uh, even on the level of people who come to visit the brewery, there's different levels of comfortability. Right. So we have the option when people come uh, to use what we call a service, no service card, which um, if you think about like Fogo de Chao, like when you go right. to those Brazilian places, you like, all right, pile on the meat. Yeah. Okay, stop. Yeah. Pile on the right. Same thing where we say you have the option of using this so that if you don't want any staff to come by your table and clear your plates or clear your glasses while you're here, just put this no service sign up and we will stay far away from you. Um, some people don't need that. They're like, I don't care. Come by and pick it up whenever you want. Right. right? So even thinking about it at that level of comfortability for people um, has been, I think, huge. And like I said, we've been doing contact tracing since day one. And our staff has done a tremendous job of explaining why we're doing that, which is we want to make sure that we're doing our job. You know, we are a community focused company. So we need to do our part for the community. It is our responsibility to make sure that we are tracking who's here in case there is some sort of COVID outbreak, we can provide information to the folks who had visited, et cetera. Like I said, we are very lucky. We have not had that experience yet. Yeah. Um, and I'm hopeful that we don't, uh, but you know, it's a pandemic and cases are rising everywhere. Uh, and I, and I have a feeling that the government's going to be probably flipping back to how we were in March and April when everyone was shut down, you could only do curbside and delivery. That's right. probably going to happen at some point soon. Um, but we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in terms of like, you know, broader numbers and, uh, and percentages, how much, uh, of the business now is home delivery versus, uh, on premise, uh, you know, versus distribution has that, I mean, obviously you didn't do home delivery before COVID. Uh, and so any <laughs> right. portion of that, whatever percentage that is, is brand new, you know, starting in March. Um, you sure. know, but, but how has that kind of focus shifted for the business, um, you know, in, in just a broader kind of percentage basis? Yeah, I would say that wholesale has been doing uh, pretty well. Um, okay. Obviously, it's mostly package, which is not necessarily a good thing, because even though the cash flow coming in is helpful. Our margins are total shit on yeah. cans, right. right? So, but it does it, again, like when it comes to cash flow, it's you're getting more cash coming in, so that's a good thing. Just not not making as much profit on it. Um, I would say we're probably hitting about at about eighty to eighty five percent of what our goal was this year. Hmm. So I feel pretty happy with that, sure, considering sure. we've lost like ninety percent of our keg sales. So yeah. <laughs> I'll take it. Right. Um, as far as like on-premise tap room drinking versus home delivery, um, I would say the on-premise is probably in terms of revenue, seventy percent, eighty percent of what we're getting right now. Yeah. Um, home delivery is more like fifteen to twenty percent. Yeah. Um, and curbside, somewhere in between there. Um, it's it, it's interesting. I, I I'm at, at the peak of us doing home deliveries. Um, and I think we were lucky that we were first to market in the area. You know, we, we were averaging 100 home deliveries a day, right? Seven days a week. So we're definitely not doing that now. At this point, we're way lower on that. Right. But I think people are more comfortable going out. Although, like I said, with the numbers coming out the way they are, we're in a worse place right now in terms of COVID, place, COVID cases than we were even in March yeah, when everything shut down. Sure. So I think that is going to... our. Our DTC deliveries are going to absolutely start going up as our taproom goes down. Um, and we're just trying to plan accordingly. Yeah, yeah. Um, how have you been able to kind of redeploy and also like kind of take care of staff through this mm -hmm. whole thing? Um, you know, certainly home delivery, you know, creates this, you're still serving mm -hmm. customers, you still have some way, yep. you know, to redeploy people. Um, but without that kind of highly tipped, uh, you know, service and mm -hmm. as much of that as you once had, I mean, that certainly mm -hmm. impacts, um, you know, the way that you can staff and maintain that. Um, what, yeah. what's your, what's been your strategy around uh, that with staff? Well, we've, I mean, we pool all of our tips here. Mm. So, um, whether you are the person that is bartending or you are the person that is literally just picking up glasses off the table, you are earning the same amount of tips. Um, and so that that's one thing. Also, just, you know, like I'm doing a lot of the deliveries. Right. Yeah, so like yeah. I'm not collecting tips. So like <laughs> right. any of the tips that go on that 
are going into the pool for people, yeah, right? Yeah. And so, um, and also our uh, Ben Hunter, who's my uh, sales manager, he has been, uh, <laughs> God bless him, man. Like his job is flipped on its head, I think like 50 times since March. And, right. Um, he's been a trooper. So like now he wears his job prior is he covered D.C. and parts of Montgomery County as a sales manager. He's now doing all of the wholesale deliveries. He's also doing DTC deliveries with me as well, as well as still trying to continue to do wholesale sales and just, you know, and and then, you know, other duties as assigned. Right. right. <laughs> it's just it's yeah. been a lot. Right. And so um, also just trying to be more flexible, like, uh you know, making sure we're providing meals for people in a more flexible way. Um, guess what? You can have more shift beers today. Like if it's been a particularly the, being generous where we can and also understanding the circumstances of where we're at financially. Right. And so we got to make sure our bills are paid. We want to make sure that our staff is taken care of and want to make sure that they're making good money. And so really um, the tip pooling has been very helpful in that way um, to help people, uh, still be able to make good money and then just asking staff to be flexible um in terms of what they're asked to do yeah nothing that's like you know crazy or unsafe but it's like for example today john he's our uh shift manager in the evening in the tap room but right now he's in his car driving around doing direct consumer deliveries right so like he's picked up a few more hours today um for his paycheck um but he's being flexible in terms of what he's doing right yeah. so just those are just a couple of examples. Yeah, um, we're starting to you know come to a close here, uh, but I do want to ask you like uh, what you see this you know immediate impact for the broader brewing uh, world looking like over the next uh, six to nine months, um, and then you know what do you think uh, you know all of us together can and should be doing um, over the next couple of years in order to recover from this together. Um, what do I see going forward? I, I think that breweries that don't have a lot of cash in their bank accounts right now are going to have a very, very difficult time surviving this winter. Yeah. That's, that's number one. I mean, January and February um, are bad months for every brewery, no matter who you are, no matter whether it's a good right. year or a bad year. And, uh, exactly. Um, I think, I think really pushing Congress to pass more stimulus and I think they need to particularly focus on the two programs that I think were the most helpful were, again, the one where um, prior SBA loans were paid for. And the reason I think it's important for SBA loans to be the ones is because those are the those are the loans that go to the smallest businesses. Those are the loans that go to the people who weren't able to get regular commercial credit. Right. So they're the ones that are in the most need of that help. Secondly. Um, I actually think the Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program is a much better and more effective program than the Triple P program is. Uh, one, the terms are better. You have 30 years to pay it back. It's still a low interest rate. I think it's like 3.75%. Um, and prior to them capping it at $150,000, you could actually get more than that of what, what you needed. So I think Congress needs to plus funds up into that program. So make sure you're advocating um, for that on the congressional level. Um, I think also working together as a, uh, as colleagues is important. So for example, with the supply chain issues with aluminum cans, um, we went in with a couple other breweries and ordered four containers from Asia, um, for aluminum cans. So thinking about creative ways like that to work with your colleagues so you can buy in larger bulk, um, to get what you need as, co as companies. Um, and then just making sure that we're, doing the right thing. Like when the government says you have to shut down or you are at certain limited capacity, make sure you're following those rules and be the community leaders that I know that our industry is when it comes to health and safety. Um, and just making sure you're, <laughs> if you see other breweries that are like, Hey, the limit's 25, but you're at 50. What are you doing, ma'am? Like just make sure folks are, are, are abiding by the rules and advocating for that. And then keep making really good beer. Um, I think we could all use a drink. Uh, it's kind of my uh, my motto for 2020. Um, God bless the people who were doing some of those sober months. I just, you know, good for you. I, was, <laughs> right, I wasn't right. and won't be one of them. But um, yeah, it's been, you know, just trying to have patience. And again, yeah. like, just think about everyone is struggling right now. Like we have, I have days where I wake up and I am in absolute 
panic, panic attack level anxiety and depression. And then I have days where I wake up and I feel like I can conquer the world. And it's just like a constant roller coaster. And so just trying to think everybody is going through that right now. Um, whether it's because they have two kids at home that are screaming while they're trying to make them right. homeschool and, you know, all that, or they're worried about making payroll this week. And so it's just, um, I just, you know, just try to be helpful to everybody and be a good neighbor. And, uh, yeah, yeah, that's what I would say. Patience, kindness, empathy mm-hmm. go a long way these days, for sure. Yes, they do. For sure. I think that's a good place to close. GD Chillers is your premier choice for glycol chilling needs. Get haze for days with Carry Bio Haze available from BSG. Quantaperm's innovative systems for offer precise carbonation. Grandstand is your one-stop shop for drinkware, apparel, and promotional items. ABS Commercial is giving away a Keg Viking Keg Washer live on December 5th. And subscribe now to Craft Beer and Brewing to support this very podcast. Um, Julie, if people want to learn more about denizens, and I should, before we say that, I really appreciate you speaking honestly with us about this. I mean, it's a, sure. a difficult situation that everyone finds themselves, everyone operating breweries finds themselves in today. Um, and being open and transparent about that so that we can hopefully work together borrow and, and use ideas um, you know that are uh, you know, collectively good is uh, it's such an important way to help get through this so thank you for that if um, Not a problem. if people want to learn more about denizens uh, your brewery and uh, your locations uh, both in real life and the internet uh, <laughs> where do they find you uh, well we obviously have a website uh, which is just denizensbrewingco.com yeah uh, we are on Instagram Facebook Twitter uh, Instagram and uh, Twitter are just at denizensbrewing and then Facebook just look up denizensbrewingco well thanks for talking to me about this I know it's a it's a difficult thing that we're all kind of getting through right now yeah. but I uh, appreciate your perspective on it yeah cheers Julie yeah cheers thanks Jamie This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.